This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Brian Collins about why designers shouldn't think of themselves as mere problem solvers in these fast-changing times. If you're going to be future-facing, you can't wait for a problem. Because by the time a problem shows up on your desk, it's too late. Here's Debbie Millman. Brian Collins is a master of many things. For many years, he worked at Ogilvy & Mather, where his team designed the fantasy chocolate store for Hershey in Times Square and the Dove Real Beauty campaign, among many other big-time corporate projects. He worked for Steve Jobs at Apple. Then he went on to create his own branding and communications firm, Collins, which is a revolutionary agency making groundbreaking work. He's also an educator. Since 2001, he's been a professor in the graduate design program here at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Brian Collins, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. It's good to be here. Brian, I understand you worked in your hometown library when you were a teenager. What were you doing? I wanted a job where I could get a little bit of money. You know, to, to spend. <laughs> yeah, and libraries are really notoriously big payers. Well, no, it was, it was a town job, and I saw that there were openings um, in the town library, and I've been smitten by books. And I said, well, wouldn't that be incredible to, like, work in a place where you love the product? And so I started working there in junior high school. I worked there uh, through high school. So I understood by the back of my hand the Dewey Decimal System. So were you shelving? Were I you... was shelving. I was a page. It's called a page. And you're responsible for basically collecting all the books that people return, organizing them, um, and putting them back in the departments they're supposed to be in. Then I worked as a reference page um, when I got to high school, and that's what people would come and say, hey, I have, I have an interest in minerals, or I have an interest in history. I'd like to know about the history of Lexington, Massachusetts, where I grew up. And, and then I found that I could um, as, be as fascinated by a, a book around history as I could have about a book about uh, Degas. I read that when you were growing up, some of the older boys in your neighborhood made fun of your endless reading, yep. but you didn't care. You were busy battling flying monkeys. Yeah. Well, I loved to draw and I loved to read. And I think when you're a kid and you discover that you really like something and you really love it, what ends up happening is you end up ignoring the kind of pressure to conform. And most kids who are 8 or 9 or 10 years old would, would turn a game of kickball into sort of blood sport. And it didn't make any sense to me. So I said, drawing makes sense to me. Reading makes sense to me. And why wouldn't I want to spend an adventure, you know, in a balloon traveling over Oz rather than trying to battle, you know, wits with a, you know, illiterate nine-year-old? <laughs> From... You know, I'd, I'd sooner spend time in the Emerald City than getting to a, you know, a fist fight with some kid who I didn't really like. And by the way... The girls made more sense to me when I was nine and ten years old. Well, don't they always? They, they, were, <laughs> they were like, what do you want to do? Like, let's go on picnics. I'm like, yeah, and let's go take a walk in the forest. You know, the guys, every, when you're eight or nine years old, the explosion of testosterone in kids' and boys' brains, I found it limiting. I'd sooner spend my time in sketchbooks and, and reading and hanging out with girls. who made a lot more sense to me. From what I understand, you stumbled across a shelf of forgotten Oz books yeah. in your town library and were reborn. Yet, you weren't as big a fan of the film. No. When you saw the movie on television, you thought it was nonsense and stated this. 
the grim, sepia dust bowl of Kansas over munchkin land in eye-popping technicolor? Pigs, dirt, and barns over talking scarecrows and Emerald City? You apparently like the ending of the book version Absolutely. better. Sure. So, so tell us about this disdain for the movie. Well, look, the movie is an integration of the conscious and the unconscious, right? What I love it is it blurs the worlds. In the film, you're absolutely convinced it happens to her, right? To watch the film it was shot in 1938-1939 and to watch the twister scene is terrifying today. Mm-hmm. All the adults abandon her and she's transported into this sort of realm of the unconscious and the imaginal. I remember watching it because it was broadcast through the 1960s and through the 70s around Thanksgiving and it was an event. You could only see it that time. Yes. And it was a big thing. And my, my mom would say, you've got to get your tub and you have to get ready when you're a kid. And we, my whole family watched it. And my sister was terrified when the witch came out. So you, when you watch this film, it's real. That stuff that happens to, to Dorothy is real. You're convinced those people are real. And at the end of the film, she wakes up and you realize, what, that was a dream? She goes, and you were there and you were in there. And I was okay with that. And then she says, after those incredible adventures... If I have to go looking for anything else, I won't go f- looking further, further than, my own, than my own backyard. Yeah, I'm like, wait a second. That wasn't the film that I just saw. She championed a guy with no brain, a guy with no heart, um, a guy with no courage. She vanquished someone who was out to kill her. And now she's saying, I really want to stay here. To any kid, that is insincere. And you know, you know she's lying. The entire film rings true to me except for that one sentence. So she's lying. And I think it was done by MGM during the 1930s. It was the midst of the Depression. And I don't think they wanted to get people sort of riled up. They wanted to say, stay at home, stay where you were. Home is the place where you're safe. And for me, I'm like, no, I want to go back to Oz. I want to go talk with talking scarecrows and trees that throw apples and, you know, and emerald cities. I don't want to spend my time in a dusty pig pen. But the book, it really happens. Uh, Glinda sends her back over the desert that separates Oz from the rest of the world. And she loses her, her, uh, shoes. her, her magic shoe, shoes yeah, over the things. The and then she has a series of 14 other adventures that L. Frank Baum wrote. Um, and one was for me was better than the other. And that summer I discovered them. I'm like, there's a whole series of books. She goes back? What? And I read one after the other after the other. And I was born both as a citizen of Oz and then I was born as a, as a child of, of libraries. And wonder. Absolutely. She's abandoned by every adult. She propels herself, right? And even at the end, the Wizard of Oz says, come to, and I will see you um, in Oz and I will take you back in my balloon. And even then he abandons her. And then Glinda says, by the way, the thing that you needed to get home, you've had all along and it's on your feet. The thing about this is it's wisdom and wisdom can't be willed. Ambition can be willed. Achievement can be willed. But wisdom has to be experienced. And so she had to go through that stuff. Otherwise, I don't think those shoes would have worked. And so for me, that film is powerful up until that last 60 seconds. And then the books for me became real. And I lived them uh, the summer I was 10 years old. I lived in Oz. Your hometown, as you mentioned, is Lexington, Massachusetts. Right. You were the oldest of five children yes. in a very large Irish Catholic family. That's what right. was that like? Noisy. <laughs> um, and um, surrounded by mom and my aunts and certainly my dad, but primarily my grandmother, my aunts, and my sisters and my, my younger brother. But I was, um, you know, e- even to this day, I, I go home and I think I'm an, an enlightened adult. And I go in to see my mom and my sisters and my brother, and I, and I leave. I think I'm an adult, and I leave, 
after two or three days with them, I'm still Peter Brady. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm still, like, and my mom, when I leave the house, she makes me a lunch. She wraps my uh, soda in tinfoil and she gives me 20 bucks. She goes, yeah, because <laughs> you're going on the train. You need some money, Brian. Thanks, mom. I read, I'm, I'm, I'm 12 years old. Of my course. Mom, so, and will be forever. Yeah. I, I, when my father was alive, I always ended up becoming 14 again. Always. Oh, yeah. And I'm 12. Yeah. Yep. I read an interview in Fast Company that you were that you described yourself as a flamboyant child with a precocious sense of style. What kind of style? One of the things you learn how to do when you're the last one picked for the baseball team. Right? Yes. Okay, that's the way it is. Fine. I'll embrace that. So I read and I drew and I said, I'm going to be different. So I'm you were a misfit? Were you a misfit com- growing up? Oh, compl- yeah. And, but embraced it. And I was a misfit by conviction at, at that point. So you, you weren't resentful that you... No. And my parents liked it and liked the fact that I was an artist. My dad and my mom and my aunts would always buy me art supplies. And my dad took me to art museums in the weekend and my mom took me to opera. And so it was... You know, people say, where's your inspiration from? Oh, I got my inspiration from the street. No, I got my inspiration from the Met. And I got my inspiration from the Museum of Fine Arts. And I got my inspiration from opera and theater. And so my back was visited my parents. But at a very young age, I had an aunt who was a seamstress. And I remember being fascinated by movies from the 1930s and 40s, particularly Fred Astaire. And Fred Astaire had an ascot. And I went to my aunt and I said, can you make me an ascot? I was 11. And she said, yeah. So she went fabric shopping with bolts of fabric. And uh, she designed ascots. And I would wear ascots in the fifth and sixth grade. There's a photograph of me in the Bridge Elementary School graduating class in the sixth grade. And I'm all the kids there in like striped, like early 70s. And I have an ascot. And I'm 11. I think that's fantastic. It's insane. It's fantastic. Well, you you own it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I did. Absolutely. My brother's son is in elementary school, and he told me recently that my nephew's best friend wears a suit every day to school, to elementary school. And so I asked my nephew about this young boy. I said, so I understand your best friend wears a suit every day to school. And he says, yes, Nicholas is very fancy. And that just made my heart burst in ways I can't ever fully express. Well, I had a best friend like that. And David would dress up too. His parents were, were uh, wealthy and he would like go shopping at Saks Fifth Ave and my aunt would make me like incredible shirts and stuff. So, but David and I were, you know, flamboyant together. Um, and then, uh, but I, I was willing to embrace that very early on. And, um, it's very wonderful that you were encouraged to do that. My parents encouraged me. My aunts encouraged me. Everyone said, just go. And, um, when you're that flamboyant, you you have to keep your eye out for bullies, mm-hmm. right? And um, I knew it was like to be surrounded by bullies. So I, I learned how to make a joke. I learned how to be um, – I also could draw. And drawing is kind of this magical thing. And I go, Brian knows how to draw. So I knew how to draw and I knew how to make a joke because if you cracked a joke at a bully while he's trying to throw you a punch, a laugh will stop a punch. So I was I became funny. And when you're funny you know how to draw, the bullies don't beat you up. And they I want w- you to entertain them. To entertain them. And then I would had a, had a radar. I had a sort of a radar for finding who the bully was in the, in the situation. And I would make them laugh. And then, they w- and, then, and then they wouldn't beat you up because they would like – then they put your arm around you and they go, Brian's my guy. I, I, I kind of like him. So I, I was able to you – know, I didn't want to be beaten up. So I would make them laugh. You have that radar still today, not necessarily for bullies, but for recognition, for certain types of people. And where did that radar first emerge? How did you realize you even had that radar? 
Well, you realize that you're different yourself and you realize your wiring is different. You realize you don't want to get in a fight with a six or seven or eight-year-old kid and you want to go and read about a car that flies or a kid that has a magic carpet that flies or science fiction. And, you, and so your mind, you know, you, you suddenly realize your mind is different. And so uh, you have to learn very quickly who you can be safe with, right? And so you've developed a sixth sense. Who can I talk to them about my ambitions? I love to draw and I love painting and I don't want to play football. I don't want to be on the baseball team. You know, I want to read. I want to draw. And so you find adults very quickly who are fascinated by that. So you develop a sixth sense. You're, 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 like, you're like an octopus with right. your, your psychic. A radar for safety. A radar for yeah. safety. And for radar for people who see you for what you want to see yourself as. And so I navigated toward adults I recognized had power very quickly. And they were smart and they could help you. So I, I learned who would be open to that. And that kind of you are then open to things like serendipity, synchronicity, your unconsciousness. You're very much connected to my dream state and my imaginal state. You can smell that under people when they are too. How they dress, how they walk in a room, what they're wearing, the language they use. So I'm very keen to those kinds of things. Um, and I've been since I was a kid. You went to the Massachusetts College of Art and got a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Mm -hmm. But I understand you also went to Parsons School of Design, and one morning, you and your roommates walked out of your building to go to school and stumbled across a dead body spread over 14th Street. Yeah. <laughs> so was, what happened there? Well, you get a Talk about a radar. <laughs> it's, uh, well, look, um, I was in school here in the early 80s, and that was the era of taxi driver. And the city had, pretty, had gone bankrupt and had abandoned Union Square. They hadn't touched it. Hadn't been cleaned and hadn't been cut. And it was terrifying. Um, between the drug deals, people were murdered. And I lived in Union Square. And one morning, that was, we saw three bodies. That was just one we saw one day. One we saw, we walked out one morning. Uh, we, we left at like uh, 8 o'clock. We came back at a break at 11 o'clock. And there was the body still spread out on top of a car. And we, and we, we called the security guy. We said, I think he think he's dead. I, <laughs> oh, I saw him God. later and he goes, the guy goes, yeah, he was dead. New York City was dangerous then. It wasn't filled with Disney shops and Whole Foods. Well, certainly 42nd Street wasn't, that's no, for sure. but neither was Union Square. Yeah. It wasn't Shangri-La. Um, and so it gave a city a sense of menace uh, that kind of, in many ways, fueled a lot of uh, remarkable things. Uh, the Union Square is filled. I, that's where I met uh, Larry Rivers at his studio there. Antonio Lopez was in my building. I became friends with Antonio and uh, Juan Romos, uh, his business partner. So it was really a rich... Part of that. And I think the soul of that still place still lives here. What's interesting is my office is now two blocks from there in, in, uh, in Greenwich Village. Um, but uh, that, it was a dangerous time. After you graduated, you opened your own shop in yep. Boston. What made mm -hmm. you decide to do that right away? Um, I was given a freelance project while I was still in school with the Digital Equipment Corporation. Digital was like the second, at the time, the largest technology company in the world after IBM. And then I did another project, and I did another project. I turned around. I had three people working for me, four people. Then I got a business partner. We moved to Concord. We had about 15, 16 people working for us. In the late 80s, uh, at that point, we were doing a lot of work. We were making good money, um, but I didn't like the work we were doing. I wanted to do work that Michael Vanderbilt was doing, that Joe Duffy was doing, that the Massimo Vignelli was doing, the Pentagram was doing. And we were doing annual reports and a lot of stuff that was wonderful, but wasn't, it didn't. Make your heart sing. It wasn't made by the guy in the sixth grade who was making ascots. Right. And I'm like, I want something more than this. So I sold my company, picked up and moved to London. And I got my passion back again. One summer I visited all the designers in London I, I admired when I was 28. 
What made you decide to approach Joe Duffy about a job? I was introduced to Joe, um, and I, I said, I'm very curious about meeting Joe. Joe, had, um, Joe was curious about, said, yeah, I'd love to meet Brian. Um, I met Joe uh, in New York City. Um, he said, uh, I'd very much like you to come out and meet the rest of my staff. I in 19, it was, uh, God, 1999, I pick up, and I uh, m- went out and met uh, Todd Waterbury, Sharon Werner, Haley Johnson, Joe, um, and they were at the very top of the design game. You yes, know, they I, were. And they were killing it. And there, there are 11 of them. And Joe uh, said, you want to move to Minneapolis? And so I left my design studio in Boston, sold my business to my partner, and picked up and moved to the Midwest and never looked back. The decision to work with Joe changed uh, my life. In what way? You're lucky if you meet people who help you in your career uh, and help you in your work. I was blessed. Joe helped me make my life better. How? I saw and con- uh, contemplated a, a successful career in Boston. And I'm like, okay, I was, we have a company with 15 people. And we were growing. We were doing work for John Hancock, digital, you know, the, the, the regional mm-hmm. major corporations. And yet I would see the stuff that Joe was doing. Like, now, you know, what was Classico he was doing? We were going to do work with Ralph Lauren. And the work was just powerful and it was illustrative and it moved me because it was kind of magical and it was illustrative and God forbid New York because it was decorative, God forbid. <laughs> and Boston was sort of trapped in the sort of new modernism where everything was flush left, universe, people got excited if they did a, did a red rule underneath it. It was very trapped by what I thought was a very constricted Yale aesthetic. Everything was sans serif and everything was flush left. Picture on the left, type on the right, type on the right, and it was just really limiting. And But in Boston... That was the game. And if you did that kind of work, then you were elevated. And I'm like, I didn't want to do that kind of work. I saw Joe doing pictures with pirates and baseball players and photographs and drawings of tomatoes for, for like pasta sauce. And it was magical. And it didn't look like the kind of grim, gray, Swiss stuff that was, you know, Boston was trapped in. And so when Joe said, do you want to come and work with me? I'm like, I picked up my bags and I was there two weeks later. What was the biggest thing you learned working with Joe? The power to say no. In what way? I think that the design business felt it was this in the service business. And so the client was always, the customer is always right. So the customer wants it this way, you have to do it like that. And that's how I thought you would build a business by being responsive. Um, and Joe told me, no, you have to be responsible to the creative brief and create responsible to the problem and responsible to the customer and responsible to the brand. And uh, he was very specific about the kind of brands he wanted to work with and then built a remarkable business. And so the power to say no, I don't say it very often because I'm very careful about the clients that we do work with. And the clients we want to do work with want to transcend, create something new, invent something that hasn't been seen before. But to learn that you could say no to a client. I remember we were working in a famous brand when I first got there for a very, very famous brand. It was a beverage brand. And... uh, Joe had been through six, seven, eight, nine rounds of revisions, and they're meaningless changes. But some internal person said, that doesn't look good. This doesn't look good. And they said, there was one last change. It was stupid. And it really compromised the design, the integrity of the design. And uh, the client said, um, well, and any design firm we work with, any design firm in the world would make this change. And Joe's attitude was, well, then you should have hired any design firm in the world. And then Joe went on to do extraordinary work with uh, with other brands, including like you know Coca Cola. I mean, Joe's 
is uh, such a remarkable mentor to me and such a hero um, in terms of what he was able to craft in Minneapolis. And that's the other thing is creativity can happen anywhere, right? It was smack dab in the middle of the country and he revolutionized and he brought, I think, romance. He brought illustration. He brought decoration. And I think he brought soulfulness into the design equation when it was missing. Now, I'm not exactly sure about the timing here. 33 years old, you find yourself in what you referred to as a black tunnel. Uh-oh. You found that article. I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Is it okay to talk about it? Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's important, actually. You stated that you had no idea when the lights would turn on again, yeah. away from your family in the middle of a long winter, living in a new part of the world with few friends. You began what turned out to be your first and what you've now said is your last, gratefully your last, yeah. full-blown, epic, soul-carving humdinger yeah. of a depression. Yeah. What happened? Well, I think uh, for those of us who, you know, we have spirit and we have soul, right? So the spirit is something that guided my, me. Go wear an ascot. Go work in the library. Go to New York City. Pick up and move, start your own company. Go and move to Minneapolis. That's the spirit calling you, right? And the spirit uh, wants heights. The spirit wants sunlight. The spirit wants achievement. The spirit wants sort of maybe recognition. The spirit wants efficacy and sort of self-determination. I can do this, right? The soul wants something else. And at that point in my life, I had moved and picked up uh, to follow my spirit. My grandfather actually said, pick up and go. And if it fails, Brian, you can always come back to Boston. We have a beautiful house here. You can sit. Try it. Just go. It doesn't matter. You always have a home here. Come back. If it fails, we're waiting for you here. So that was my grandfather's terrible you know, my impression of my grandfather's Irish brogue. But in leaving that kind of a family where I saw them all the time, if I had a bad week, I'd go and see my mom. And she said, you know, do you want a nice piece of toast? Or do you want a piece of roast beef? Do you want a nice piece of you know, pie? Or my grandfather said, Brian, how you do? we're going to have Sunday dinner this afternoon. We're going to have some roast beef. Do you want to come by? I'm like, sure. So I was very close to my family. And uh, I picked up and I lived in, in, in Minneapolis. I did not know it would be six months of tundra. It is six months of winter. Make no mistake. There's snow on the ground for six months and it's cold. Um, and I left and I lost a connection with my family. Or I didn't – I talked to them on the phone, which made them even feel f further away. And then I slowly uh, – the lights started to go off and I, I didn't feel connected. Um, I felt deeply blue. I could look at a sunset and not see the sunrise and not feel it. And um, it, it's dark, and it's really, um, and it was really hard. And so I, um, the flip side of the spirit is the soul calls and says, you've got to pay attention to some other things, you know, and it will carve you out. And anyone who's been through a depression, anyone who's been through anything blue, um, you go through it. It'll crack you open. It was about six months. And um, no matter what you do, no matter what feel-good movie of the summer you see, you know, mm. no much much ABBA you play, you can't get out of it, right? Yeah. Um, and then after about six months of it, I, um, I worked with a cognitive therapist who was introduced to me. And uh, uh, he said, your family's not here. I didn't want to go back. I wanted to stay on this adventure. He said something very simple. Make a new family. Create a new family. And then I also started to read James Hillman. I started to understand the connections between depression and mythology and the imagination. And what the depression did is it carved me out. 
and it meant that I could go into my next chapter of, of my life, and I started to investigate what, what happened to me. So I read, and I basically spent almost two and a half, maybe three years just reading. I had to get my head back in the game, and I studied mythology, psychology, history, biography, and had I not had that depressive episode, I wouldn't have been curious about what I had gone through. For anyone who's ever been, and being blue and being depressed are two different things. Um, and I've been blue, and blue is fine, but depression is something else. And for those of us who are creative, and I don't know anyone who's really good, who is not creative, who is partly bipolar. <laughs> um, and so we have to be aware of this. I think it's important that we talk about it um, because for people who go through it, you, you, they, they need their hands held or they need to be, you need to be present with someone. Not to work it out, not to cure it, but to live through it. Because when you live through it and you come through the other side, you can learn a lot about yourself. And I, and I am grateful for that time in my life. I know that you read a book by James Hillman yeah. titled A Blue Fire. Mm. And that was one of your maps through the dark. Right. But you've stated that if people like to read books seeking self-help, they'll hate a blue fire. <laughs> sure. So tell us about why. Because it says, he says, sit with it. Those are the muses who are talking to you. Those are gods who are talking to you. That's your imagination that's talking to you. And he doesn't think you need to improve yourself. He's just listen to what's going on. A lot of the stuff that we spend in our lives in the attempt to avoid pain, um, to avoid messiness, and we want easy answers. You know, we all want the Fast Company article. After you get through the difficulty, what are the five things that you need to take away from this? What are the six steps? To, what are the five? Everyone wants, we live in a culture, we want 12 steps, five steps, six rules, seven rules for sharpening the saw. We, we want easy things. And what the soul says is, this is not going to be easy. Or fast. Or fast, and we're going to take our time. And you're going to learn things in with this that you will never learn any other way. The most important thing I learned was two things. One, I learned deep empathy, profound empathy for other people. And you go, oh, my God, are you going through this? I have nothing but empathy. And the second thing I learned and I carved out, it was a crucible. It was burned away, envy. Tell me about that. Envy because no, I envy. <laughs> Once you've been through that and you realize you can get to the other side, you don't envy anybody else's life. You just, I want my own. I see other people and envy can sometimes be motivated. Oh, I want what they have. And when I realize I don't want what they have, I want my version of their happiness. Like I so see people who've achieved certain things. Like they're doing what they want to do. How do I do my version of what I want to do? And so envy was – I compared myself to other people and I, and I stopped doing that on the other items. Envy died. I, I dropped it. There's a great quote from Walt Whitman that says that comes a point in your life where you sit by the side of the road and you take all the boxes off your back and you look at them and you put them back on your back and you retie them again. Um, and he says you have to carry all of them. I left envy by the side of the road. It's not to say I, I don't fight it now. But envy, I left and I picked up empathy instead. Going back to your career path, mm. you left Minnesota to go to San Francisco yeah. and went to Foot Conan Belding. You mm. worked there for three years, yeah. and then you returned to New York mm -hmm. to run a design group in the agency founded by one of your heroes, another one of your heroes, David, David Ogilvy. Yeah, I met when I was 23. What made you decide to do that? What was your original goal in, in starting this group? Well, a couple of things. The move to San Francisco was the spirit calling. I had sort of packed. I understood what I'd been through uh, with that. And San Francisco seemed, you know, go west. 
uh, it was sun. I remember moving there. The calla lilies were in bloom in January in San Francisco. I would, everyone could ever, yeah, it was incredible. Um, Levi's was oh, my brand. And then we became, I became what sadly passes for famous in advertising. And Ogilvy called me and they said, you built a design team on Levi's and, uh, and, and uh, Amazon.com and MTV in San Francisco. Do you want to do the same thing for uh, Jaguar, for um, IBM for um, some of the most uh, – Hershey, for the most famous brands in the world. And they, they just said, is a giant toy box. Do you want to come? I said, sure. I hired a designer and uh, they gave me an assistant. And uh, it was an opportunity to go to work with uh, you know, a first-class global advertising agency in a position of influence. They made me the executive creative director. They put me on the New York board. And uh, the reason I accepted it was because they gave me a place at the table. I did not want to become a design director. I became – they gave me the most powerful title you could have at the agency at the time, which is executive creative director, which means you can stop work from going out the door. <laughs> right. And that's – in an advertising agency, that's power. And so um, I knew that as a designer, if I didn't have a place at the table, I would just be turned into an exotic menial as a resource making wallpaper. I was invited to be a leader within the company. And so I, I couldn't turn it down. And it was back in New York. So you started the brand integration group, or BIG right, for short, right. and in the 10 years you ran it, yep. you won literally every design and advertising award for clients, including Dove, right. Hershey's, Motorola, Coca-Cola, Kodak, the campaign and design program for New York City's bid for the Olympic Games. Right. The list goes on and on. Uh, in we were busy. <laughs> you were busy. We were busy. In 2005, Fast Company appointed you one of five American masters of design. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk with you about one or two of my favorite projects of yours mm-hmm. at Big. So let's start with Dove. Talk to us about the challenge you faced with the brand and what you ended up doing for the notion of beauty in our culture today. Dove was a really interesting problem. They wanted to move out of soap into the sort of beauty and skincare category. They'd been in soap for you know 40 years the brand that was founded and launched by David Ogilvy in the 50s. Um, and they wanted to move in the beauty category. And when you enter the category, we just didn't want to replicate what everybody else did. If you, you want to enter the category, it's to come with a new point of view. And so we really thought it would be interesting to embrace the unfolding dialogue at the time around body and a lot of conversations around shape, size, color, age, skin. And we thought that would be interesting. And so we, we, we did a big campaign and we photographed uh, women of different ages and different scale and different body size. And it, it, it kind of looked like a Lane Bryant campaign. And like, this isn't going to work. And then a member of my team came in to a workshop that we had and she had a picture of her mom, Dara Marshall. I remember she's a brilliant account lead on our team. And she had this picture and she said, look at my mom. And she was, she was an infant in her arm and her mom was breathtakingly beautiful. And then we said, well, let's everyone bring in pictures of the women in their lives that are important to them. And they did. Their moms, their sisters, their grandparents, their daughters, their, everybody. And we all had these photographs. And these were extraordinarily beautiful women. I said, well, why don't we ever see women that look like this? They're, they're, they're beautiful. Um, and then other members of the team, including Judd Harner, David Israel, um, we took this idea and we invited uh, 70 of the world's most celebrated female photographers and said, what does female beauty mean to you? Not through the men's eyes, but through women's eyes. And we got the most incredible, iconoclastic, beautiful photographs. Instead of doing it as an ad campaign, we built it as an exhibit that traveled across North America, and the press went insane for this. I mean, there are images of uh, little people, um, older people, people with freckles. I mean, and, and it was uh, these sort of quite celebrated photographers, Marilyn Mark, Annie Leibovitz, were among them. And all sorts of ranges of beauty, traditional beauty, more provocative beauty. The idea was beauty should be a source of confidence, 
and self-esteem and not anxiety. And it was democratic and it was personally defined, not by the fashion industry and not by the beauty industry. And so we did this incredible exhibit. Unilever saw the response to the exhibit and they said, well, people are responding so well to this. It gave them permission to do the campaign for real beauty. The highest honor I've received and the only really award I have in my office um, is the National Organization for Women gave uh, my team and me the, the, the Media Image Award. Um, but I got to tell you, it was, you know, like every project that I've had, I st- we all stood in the shoulders of remarkable women on, on my team, including um, Laurie uh, Cohen, uh, Lee Okies, um, who've gone on to do remarkable things. So, um, Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because in addition to all of the accolades yeah. and the awards, mm-hmm. you've become known for an additional really unique trait. You find and foster talent. Um, the list of people you have discovered uh, and mentored is literally like a who's who in graphic design, whether it's Alan Dye, Michael Ian Kay, Mark Kingsley, John Fulbrook, Stella Bugby, Matt Luckhurst, David Israel, Deborah Adler, Bobby Martin. I mean, the list goes on and on. How do you do this? <laughs> Tell us how you find uh, this. I, well, look, I, I don't think I discovered any of them, and I think they would hopefully agree. Um, that same kind of sense that you find people who live their life with a light that shines beyond the stone that they're standing on. And they want to build connections. They have a discussive intellect. They see the world in big ways. They ask a really interesting question, like, what if? What if we do that? What if we try that? Maybe I can try this. They have boundless ambition. They usually have an extraordinary character, and they always have talent. Those are the three things they have, character, energy, ambition, and talent. Ambition will propel them through doubt. We all have doubt. I'm sometimes racked with it. But character is something that uh, I think makes uh, makes your career at the end. I think that's what we that's what drives everything. And then talent is that weird ability to look at pattern, the same pattern everybody else is seeing, and see something new. Um, talent is, I think, a very heightened pattern recognition system and find the meaning in the chaos and pull it out and say, it means that, it means this. And the people who you mentioned are incredible with that. Some of them have written it to fame and fortune. Um, some have been written to building extraordinary creative careers like um, Rebecca Mendez, who's about to win the AIGA medal. Yes. And who already won the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. Um, I would argue that these people were already on their way. And when I met them, all I said is, do you want to play in the sandbox that we're trying to create? And I think the reason all those people fit together when, when we were working together, and hopefully can, to this day, um, including someone on my team like uh, Tim Goodman, who, you know, Tim, of course. who, who we hired out of, uh, you know, out of SVA, um, who's done, gone on to do extraordinary things, is we have a team of sort of, I'd like to think, you know, gifted misfits, and we all fit together with each other because we don't seem to fit together anywhere else. And I like that. It also means you have to embrace all of them, not just the things that are their talent, their insecurities, their doubts, their, their, their um, creativity is a complex thing. And you have to say, I want all of you, all of the things, all your quirks, all your shortcomings, all your doubt, all your anxiety, all your ambition, all your ego, all your hope, bring it all. And not just, I just want this part and that part. It's like falling in love. When you open the door to love, it all comes in. If you want talent, you have to take it, all of it, and you have to accept them for all they are and create places where they feel that that's embraced. Does that make sense? Absolutely. In a big, gigantic move, you decided to leave big and go work for Steve Jobs at Apple. Tell us about that. 
Oh, the, I haven't spoken about this publicly. Are you? Do you want to? Uh, I'm. Let me try and see if I can. Okay. I know um, they're very secretive over there. They're very, they're super secretive, and they and they should be because they're because they're making the future. Um, and I've purposely not talked about it because it was a confusing time for me. It's a very strange thing to get on your message. Hey, Brian, this is Steve Jobs. Can you give me a ring? I want to talk to you about what we're doing here at Apple, and I think, you know, you might be interested in it. Click. I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, did you think it was a prank? Absolutely thought it was a prank. So Jan Leth, the, director of, uh, the creative director at Ogilvy, one of the, the, the digital arm of, of um, Ogilvy, was in the office. Like, That's funny. He goes, call them back and see you. Let's play it out. And then, bing, 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 four, one, five, two, two. And the answer rings. This is Andrea. May I help you? I said, this is Brian Collins. Oh, Brian, Steve wants to talk to you. Can you talk right now? I said, sure. Bing, bing, Brian. Brian? Yes. Hi, it's Steve Jobs. Thanks for calling me back. And I went, and Jan goes, that's, and I went, and I covered the phone. And he goes, Brian, that's Steve Jobs. I goes, Jan, I'll catch you later. And he said, we're doing some interesting things out here. I want you to come out and meet Johnny. Can, can I put you on a plane? Can you come out here this, you know, this weekend? Johnny as in Johnny Ive. Johnny Ive. I'm like, yeah. So I, I was Thursday. I flew out on a, on a plane Friday night. I met Steve on Saturday. Um, Three-hour interview. He grilled me, and then he dropped me back. Wanted to continue the conversation. He dropped me, dropped me back to my hotel. We had a, like an hour conversation, and then he was he dropped me off. He left, and and I was in the hotel calling my sister. Like I think I'm going to go work for Apple. I think I had a really good interview with Steve Jobs. <laughs> and then someone pokes me on the shoulder, and it's Steve Jobs. And he goes, Brian, my wife wants to know if you'd like to join us for dinner tonight. I'm like, Marion, hold on. I'm like, yeah. And so I'm off. I get back in Steve's S-class Mercedes, and we go to Steve Jobs' house. And I spend the evening with Steve, his family, his kids, Lorraine, listening to music. Have spent the whole evening there talking about the future and talking about Apple. He offered me the job. I said, can you, you want to come? So I went to Ogilvy, and I said, yes. And I said, I'm, I'm going to leave. And Ogilvy was just don't – it was difficult because I had built a, my own sort of design company within, within Ogilvy. But I, you know – when Steve Jobs calls, it's you know, you, you know, you did you do? And I went. I got along really well with Steve. He was the, the idea, you know, the Steve, um, you know, the, the universe war, warped around Steve Jobs. Um, and he would call me. You know, I'd be in New York. He'd call me at one o'clock. Like I, I remember, it was like one o'clock in the morning. He was calling. For, he called me. Calling me. He called me. Brian, I'm in Kauai. He just finished MacWorld, which is where he went after he did MacWorld. I want you tomorrow morning. Can you go down to Prince Street? We're building an Apple store there. Can you go and take a look? I want you to meet the architects. I want your point of view. Blah 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 blah. blah. And so I walked through the Apple store in, in construction on Prince Street. And I called him in Kauai, you know, and talked about the glass staircase and whether or not the Apple logo should go at the very top. And I said, no, I didn't think it was necessary because you already knew where you were. And so was, I had a really good relationship with him. And then I got there and, and then I realized working there that what it was is an entire – make no mistake, the lead designer at Apple above Johnny was Steve Jobs. He was a designer through and through and through. And one time we were walking down a hallway. He picked up a piece of plastic resin that was like foamy. And he goes – isn't this good? Hold this. It was like a weird temperature. It was colder. He gave it to this shocked designer. Come and talk to me about my office. And they were freaked out. But Steve was a designer through and through. And he was the, the vision. And I remember talking to him over dinner. He said, the world needs Apple. It was a mission for him. Um, what, what you had is an entire organization that was built around second-guessing Steve Jobs. And his mission was to find the most extraordinary designers in the world to bring his, his vision to life. And it was a very powerful vision. And I was ambivalent about whether I, I was building chocolate factories 
and doing work with Jaguar and Charlie. And it was the vision that I was working on with Michael Kay, Rebecca Mendez, David. We were starting to make something on our own. And I wasn't, I was ambivalent about signing up, passing my vision and giving up mine for that, for Steve's, which was magnetic. And um, uh, through a series of conversations, Ogilvy called. Ogilvy said to me, go out and take the job, but we'll leave the light on for you. Nice. And they called me every week. How's it going? How's it going? And I had a long conversation with Steve. Steve felt my ambivalence. I felt my ambivalence. And Ogilvy asked me to come back. Um, they structured something for me that was extraordinary. And um, I picked up and I returned to New York. Any regrets? None. I did for a while. None. N- How uh, hard was it for you to make that decision? Impossible. Did people think you were insane? Uh, I think they thought I was absolutely mad, but but I was unsure if I saw uh, an, or an organ rejection coming um, in that culture, and I didn't want to fail. I didn't, you know, I was, I doubt, I had real doubt, and I wasn't willing to live with it. And Ogilvy and the kinds of things we were doing there were so compelling. Um, and Rick Boyko, who had who invited me to come to Ogilvy in the first place and set up big, Steve Hayden, who was the who was a creative chairman of Ogilvy at the time, who wrote the 1984 commercial, who had worked with Steve, had said, you know, come back. Shelley Lazarus, the chairman, had said, please come back. We, we we miss you. And I ended up having a conversation with Steve, and he goes, I chatted with some of those executives. They miss you badly. They really miss you there. And I had a global organization of about 25,000 people who wanted me to help lead them. And I had some ambivalence around Apple. And I returned to Ogilvy. And for a, while, uh, for a little bit, I, re- I like, what, what did I do? But now looking back, I've built uh, my own sense of understanding about what I went through um, in that. I was slammed a little bit in the press, but I put my head down, persevered. We did the campaign for Real Beauty, and we built some of the most amazing stuff. Um, and then I knew it was interesting. I knew... When I was invited to speak at Davos in the World Economic Forum, I wasn't invited because I was an executive at Apple. I was invited because of what we did, our own work, our own vision, the things that we were making for Mattel, for, uh, for Dove, for the stuff we're doing for the Olympics. So we, I, my team and I were being recognized for what my team and I did, not because we worked on a famous brand, but because we were doing really interesting stuff. And so I, I realized that I liked working with a team of people who – I didn't know what we were going to make every week. I had no idea. And so it was always an adventure there. And for me and for the kind of mind, the sort of peripatetic imagination that I had, bouncing from Dove to IBM to Motorola to Hershey, that kind of diversity of creativity is what I needed. And then today at Collins, we work with um, a handful of the world's largest corporations and small startups. And I love that kind of peripatetic creativity. You stayed for another several years at Brand Integration Group, and then ultimately in 2008, you started Collins. Mm. And I read that one of the first things you did when you started was to take your team, which included Leland Mashmeyer, Timothy Goodman, John Fulbrook, and Stephanie Seeger, up to the Hudson River Valley to spend three days with a Buddhist teacher for a three-day silent retreat. Mm. That meant no talking, no technology, no writing. Mm. What made you decide to do this? Well, Pema Chodron has been a hero of mine, and um, she writes a lot about... um, ambition, ego, and understanding both yourself and your place in the world. And I thought it would be a, a inciting incident that we could use to frame how we were going to launch Collins. I like rituals. 
and I wanted to get my team out of New York City. So he took them up to this fantastic Buddhist retreat in bu- bucolic the Hudson River Valley. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's called the Omega Center. And it was, uh, we stayed there. It was fantastic. But she speaks a lot about fear and moving into fear and dying again and again and again and again to, to yourself so you can move into larger and larger and larger worlds. And to be very uncomfortable with doubt and fear and anguish and anxiety, recognizing to, deban- to banish that is to banish parts of the human experience and also banish parts of your soul. And not I, I need her number. And embrace those parts of, of your soul. And so we went there. We thought it was just a, a weekend. We'd listen and talk with her. We didn't know it was a silent retreat. Oh, you didn't know what you were getting no. into. No, we thought it was just like a three days with her, you know, and it was about 40, 50 people maybe. And we got there and we realized we can't say a thing. I mean, John and I were like, what's going on? And, and you got, guys are all talkers. All, John just, Holbrook we, is a talker. No, he's, he's beyond a talker. He's like a machine. He you is. Know? He I know. was my first guest on Design Matters, and I specifically picked him because I knew if I choked, he could keep talking. Yeah, I have a great I, – I adore John. He's a dear friend. And one, one of his clients loves him, and they call him The Mouth. You know, And so The Mouth and I were at a silent Buddhist <laughs> retreat. And we would sit – John would go, well, this doesn't – I'm not complaining. And the people would go, shh. I'm like, it was just – and it was so – what that forced us to do, we had to listen to her. We couldn't make comments. We couldn't make jokes. We couldn't. We had to. All we could do for three days is listen. And uh, John and Leland and Tim and Stephanie and we just listened. And it became, I think, um, a moment where we all kind of shared this common experience, and it was interesting. We laughed. We, we went out to dinner afterwards, and we talked. Um, but while we were on the campus, we had to be quiet. Um, but I like rituals. Um, why? That, why so? Why do you like ritual so much? They focus your attention on a moment. You say, "This is a moment of change." I want you want to elevate yourself out of the everyday. So whether it's a trip, whether it's going on a boat, whether it's getting on a helicopter, whether you've got to change some part of the experience to say that this is you're marking a moment in time. And I was marking the moment of a company that we were begin, beginning, informed by ambition, anxiety, doubt, hope, and she is eloquent in how the human experience embraces. All of those things. I really wanted to have a dialogue with them about all of those things in, in that weekend, and we did. Did you have to face certain things together as a group during the retreat? No, there was no trust falls. There was none <laughs> of that. I'm very suspicious of hocus pocus. Let's all focus. But I'm I'm fascinated by information. I had no prescription except for people to take away whatever they took away from it. And if it, it spawned a couple of conversations, but it was not. I didn't force it. I would just open up. To that information. It was interesting. It spawned a couple of dialogues. It came to, back to affect us two, three, four years later. I didn't have a prescription for it. I, I was curious. And that's, uh, and I was fine with just being curious. You are now about 50 people at Collins yep. in two offices. And mm-hmm. you are what I call in the zone. You're winning almost all of the work you're pitching. The work you're doing is some of the best of your career. Thank you. And you are making a real difference in the branding and design and business communities. I hope so. What do you attribute this momentum to? God, I want to come up with something that's really pithy. I really, Me too. I do. I want you to. You know? Um, but I'll tell you a couple of qualities that, that I think. Um, uh, curiosity. I'm always fascinated about what can happen next. Curiosity about talent. I mean, I meet amazing people. I had a year ago a... Doctors thought I had something in, in my neck, and uh, they were spooked by it. And uh, for about a week, they weren't quite sure what it was. And um, that was scary. And we went in for a test, 
and they weren't quite sure what it was, and said, we need to go take a look at it. And we went in, we went for a procedure, and it was completely benign. Gone. <sighs> Didn't exist. It was something that did look odd, and they couldn't quite determine what it was until they removed it. For a week, a little less than a week, um, I was, my doctor said, this is concerning to us, and it might not be goodness. What did you do? The first morning I woke up and I cried. Not because of what would happen to me, but because I was going to cry because the people who I built this company with, I wouldn't, I was concerned I wasn't going to be able to see them every day. I didn't want to suddenly climb the heights of Machu Picchu. I didn't want to, you know, open up a cupcake factory in, you know, in Iowa. I didn't suddenly want to become a, you know, a dancer. I'm like, I want to continue to do what I'm doing. And there was such a clarity for me about how much I loved the people that I worked with. I mean, loved them. I mean, I'm not abstraction. I care for them deeply because I'm gifted by them because they're all better, smarter, stronger, more creative, more imaginative, more hardworking than I am. And so I learn something from these people every day and our team of people. So I think it was a realization how much I love design and how much I love working with people and I don't know what's around the corner and I'm fascinated by the possibilities of the team that we've built to take, take on any kind of creative project. And I now have a bench of the most extraordinary people I've ever worked with, and we can do anything. Film, movies, architecture, design, branding, packaging. And so for me, it's always, what is around the corner? I think that's what drives me. What could we do next? You recently stated nobody is competing with each other anymore. No. We're all in competition with the future. I think that's true. So can you elaborate? What do you mean by that? I think that's an orientation around forgetting about looking over your shoulders um, and saying, oh, look what they're doing. Look at their, I'm, I'm not interested. Because by the time you mimic what they're doing, it's, it's over. The future is coming at us at such an extraordinary level. It's so accelerated right now. Um, the CEO of uh, Pepsi said she used to create a business and examine her business plan every five years. Now she's doing it every one to two years. It just moves that quickly. So if you're focused on what your, your competitors are doing, you're looking over your shoulder, then you're going to miss out the future, which is coming and rolling up at the door. And so you have to be oriented around what does the future hold, and you have to move faster than the culture itself, which means you have to kind of anticipate the future, and you have to have some ability to be fascinated by foresight and kind of anticipate what is going to happen next. How do you do that? Imagination, being very connected to what's unfolding around you, being connected to young people, being connected to forces in politics, economics, society, fashion, style, design, um, and try to see where the gaps are. At the end of the day, intuition, but the, at the, then they really, all intuition really is, is a very heightened pattern recognition system. So that means you've got to be aware and connected. And I think as a practicing designer, we have to be deeply connected um, to what people are looking for. And I, I think as designers, empathy is a really good guide for understanding what the future holds because you're trying to find out what, are people, what do people need that they don't know about? And how do you answer questions that, that people don't even ask? Those are future-facing questions. Ultimately, design is a future-facing act because it, and it's an optimistic act because everything we create is going to live in the future. So you have to, in my mind, think out three, four, or five years all the time. That's where design lives. And designers, I think, are like wizards in that regard is we look at the future and we say the future could look like that. It could behave like this. And we prototype it. We can make it. We just don't talk about it. Advertising agents can just talk. We can build stuff. 
we make things. And we bring it back from the future and say, which of these are the most desirable? Which of these are the most workable? And then we can then choose. I think designers are, I think the ability to live in the present and the future is demanded of designers right now. You've also said that we create brands, we create beliefs, we create belief systems. We construct frameworks through which we may better understand the world. Mm -hmm. We do this with religion as well. Mm -hmm. In today's world, do you feel like we're doing this now with politics? Oh, that's a loaded. That's a big question. Yeah. I think religion, politics, and design are all interrelated. Um, both religion and politics recognize this. This is the way the world is. And what religion, politics, and design all do is say, but this is the way the world should be. Mm. I, yeah, that's good. Very good. They all have that in common. Yeah. They all have the same ambition to make the world a better place. Right? Designers get to do that because we know how to make things. Right? We know how to imagine things. Politicians know how to do that by articulating a certain vision of the future. Um, religion does it by being connected to the metaphysical. You know? And design, I think, does both. Uh, politics is kind of you know, the, the, the art of the practical, right? And I think design it has to live in both the conscious and the unconscious. Freud said, you know, if you look at Freud, he said, you know, the, the conscious is sense and the unconscious is nonsense. And I disagree. I think the unconscious is the connective tissue that keeps us connected to synchronicity, imagination, dreams. And I think it's the responsibility of designers and, and artists to create the dreams that our culture needs to move forward. Um, I think if we don't have dreams, um, then we can't imagine. Um, and we can't imagine you know, alternative futures. Brian, my last question is about the role of the designer. For a long time, people were convinced that designers were supposed to be problem solvers. Yeah. And you came along and stated that designers were supposed to be problem makers or problem seekers. Right. Do you still feel that way? Well, that, even more so. Yeah. In our industry, we tend to latch on to the sort of uh, simple bromides and cliches that fix our imagination. We're problem solvers. Really? <laughs> The pro my problem solver is like the plumber or my roof needs to be fixed, right? That's my problem solver. And I think what it does is, uh, to use a term by Ralph Kaplan, is it turns us into exotic menials, which means we only get a call when there's a problem. And there's so many things that are going to be problems that need to be anticipated. If you're going to be future-facing, you can't wait for a problem because it, the, by the time a problem shows up in your desk, it's too late. So problem-seeking means you've got to go out and be in your front foot and look and be sort of self-propelled and look for answering problems and answering questions that people don't know how to ask. But by the time it's in the brief, it's already baked. The culture's moved past. So our job as problem seekers is to try to anticipate the problem before it happens. And I think that's the role of designers. And because we're imaginative, we figure that stuff out all the time. So I think actually problem solvers is, is not only inaccurate, it's damaging. Seeking is what we should be doing. Brian, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today, and thank you for making such positive change in the world with your work. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be here. I hope I added more, uh, more light than heat. Absolutely. Thanks. To find out more about Brian Collins, please check out wearecollins.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. 
The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. <laughs>